Welcome to On Renewal. This is your host, Sam Sager, and I'm excited to share this conversation with Steve Schlafman. Steve is a professional coach and writer who splits his time between New York City and the Catskills. What I admire most about him is his willingness to explore his own life deeply, ask himself hard questions, and inspire the rest of us to do the same. Today, we talk about Steve's journey with addiction, pivoting away from venture capital, and deepening into his coaching practice. He shares powerful ideas on change, self-unfolding, parts work, the shadow, and wholeness. As you'll hear, so much of Steve's work is connected to our theme of renewal and how people can evolve and cultivate the change we each want to see in the world. Let's jump in. Steve, welcome. How are you doing today? What's going on, man? Living the dream. Excited to chat with you. It's, uh, it was a real treat to, to read up on all of your writing as I was uh, preparing for this conversation. One thing I admire about you is it seems like you're really evolving in real time and on um, quite a transformation. So I thought we could start with just where you think some of those turning points first, uh, first emerged. Yeah. So it's funny because I had a few, a few weeks ago, I got a voice message from one of my very close, I'm mean, one of my oldest friends. And he said, Hey, you know, I was doing research on 10 day meditation treat retreats and I came across your post on medium. Was that the, 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 was that the event that led you on your transformation? And I, I thought about it for a second and I, and I laughed and I said, actually, it was at a Roots concert when I hit the floor because I was, you know, so intoxicated and eventually woken up by paramedics. I was like, wow. that was the moment that led to my transformation. Talk about a wake-up call. Yeah. So what was that like when, when you woke up and um, had that experience? As you know, I'm a lifelong Patriots fan and was there for the Super Bowl. This was in Arizona in like, 2015 or something, something like that. I forget the exact year. And, um, you know, it's been out all day, the day before the game, drinking. And um, yeah, at the concert, someone handed me a joint. I, 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 I took a puff and then next thing I knew I was on the floor. And I remember it so vividly like it was yesterday, even though I was like, you know, inebriated. I remember the pair, pair, I was with one of my best friends and he was so concerned. He said, you just went pale. I was like, I thought you were having a heart attack. And wow. um, I immediately woke up. It was like I got hit with a shot of adrenaline. And I looked at the paramedics and I was like, they're, and they're surrounding me. And I was like, I'm Steve Schlafman. I live in Brooklyn, New York. You know, this is my wife. This is her number. I'm completely fine. I have no idea what just happened. It was like something shot me out of a cannon and I just came to my wits very quickly. And wow. they eventually let me walk out on my own. But certainly that ended the night. We went home and went to bed early. Um, but it was, it was a turning point that has led me on the path that I've been on for, you know, I guess the last seven and a half years, almost, almost eight years. Yeah, that's wild. What was the early days of that like? So after that happened, I mean, how did that start shifting things in your, in your day to day or what did you start exploring yeah. coming out of that? Yeah. Well, I, I had started about six months before that I started meditating. I found I, I, I began to cultivate a meditation practice because I knew that I had an addiction issue and I had tried everything. I had told myself every Sunday night, I'm done. I'm going to quit. And, you know, sure enough, Monday, Monday night, I was getting stoned after work or having a few drinks. And um, finally, I was like, you know, it's meditation. 
So fast forward, I had this, this, this event at the Roots concert and I'm meditating. And I'm just like, I feel like shit. I feel like shit. And I could feel, and I've written about this, I could feel the addiction almost getting stronger and stronger. And, you know, there were a number of things that happened between January that year when, when I had that episode and in June when I finally decided like, hey, I got to really make a change here where I just knew that it was just going to get worse. And I was a high performer. I was highly functioning, right? I was a partner in a venture capital fund deploying, you know, millions of dollars, board member, highly respected in the community. Everybody, I mean, for the most part, nobody knew I had an issue but me. And right. I kept it very close to my vest and I was suffering alone. And at some point I'm just like, I want to be a, you know, eventually I want to be a father. I want to be a great partner and investor. I want to be a good husband, all these things. And I just knew that if I was living a life filled with substances, that it wasn't, it, none of that was going to happen. And, and I have addiction in my family. And so, you know, I've seen the impact that it can have over a long period of time. And I, I just didn't want to, you know, repeat that. You know, I didn't want to repeat that, that story. Yeah, no, that's super powerful. And it sounds like mindfulness was, and meditation was pivotal for that. But I imagine, you know, as you start to reconcile this kind of fact that you're still such a high performer and then start to make that shift that it's not, it's not overnight and it doesn't just happen kind of easily. So what other things did you do during that journey to start supporting yourself, creating conditions where you were able to kind of evolve beyond that? Yeah. Well, I think there were a number, there are a number of practices. I, you know, for me, it, so it started with meditation and then once I entered sobriety, that unlocked a whole series of practices that were really, you know, really beneficial to my, to my health and well-being. And, you know, it started with going to AA meetings. And I was very fortunate at the time I had an AA meeting at the end of my block that was every morning at 7.30, and it was an incredible meeting. I think it's one of the best meetings in New York City, very diverse group of professionals and creatives and um, actors. It's just, it's an amazing group. And so I would go to that three, four, five times a week. It was just a great way to start my day. But you would hear these stories, these amazing stories of these people who, you know, like me were either highly functional or highly dysfunctional but were able to build a much better life for themselves. And so just hearing those stories started to allow me to heal myself. So that, that was a big one. So community. Second one is I sought a therapist, sought out a therapist that specialized in addiction therapy. And so it was a psychotherapist, um, psychologist um, who had worked in the VA for over 30 years. Uh, supporting uh, troops with PTSD and heroin addiction, for for lack of a better term. And so um, I worked with him for over three years. That was wonderful. And then just exercise. I also was very fortunate. One of the best yoga studios in New York was right around the corner from my house. So I got a lot of hot yoga. And, you know, early in my recovery, I was very fortunate. I met a woman uh, by the name of uh, Holly Whitaker, who has gone on to write a book called Quit Like a Woman. Um, she's, she's a force and very prominent in the recovery space and movement. She's an author. And 
um, she recommended that I read a book called um, called uh, Integral Recovery, which was more of like a holistic. It was like a non AA uh, holistic approach to recovery, and I'm not anti AA. Um, though there are parts of it that didn't resonate with me. But when I read this book, Integral Recovery, by this gentleman, John Dupuy, it just like opened my eyes that it, the, the whole idea wasn't just, it was to heal the whole person. It was, you know, all the facets of life, you know, the body, the, the physical body, the mind, the relation, social relationships, and then you know, kind of seeing your place and kind of a broader system in the world. And, you know, that just really resonated with me. And so I, I took a lot of those practices forward in my recovery that then just became a way of life. That's so powerful. I think the thinking of it in terms of the community and the relationships, the therapy and supporting the emotional side, the physical it, it, it really is powerful to think about how all these different habits and activities and practices come together, you know, in such a challenging time, but also just for, you know, everyday life and, and how um, people can continue. Do you still intentionally pursue all of those different areas today? I do not know. Um, you know, for me, I, I no longer, I once COVID hit, I ran and I stopped going to meetings because you know, we were all in lockdown. Yeah. So I formed a men's group, which was awesome. An cool. AA group with, you know, guys in tech. That was a lot of fun that we, we had a good run. We went over six months and, and often would meet twice a week. Um, but for me, I would say, you know, I, I no longer go to meetings, but, and I no longer see my therapist, but I basically get, co- I, I see a coach who's a psychotherapist, even though he would say he's my coach, not my therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a lot of journaling. I do a, a tremendous amount of meditation. I, I try to move my body every day, though I've been sick for the last 10 days with a cold, I have a little horse, horse, mm-hmm. uh, horse throat right now. Um, so, but yeah, I try to move my body as much as I can. And those are really the building blocks and, and you yeah. know, ensure that I get enough sleep and, you know, focus on my family. So the practice has definitely evolved, but the building blocks are still there. Yeah. I like to think we all have different seasons and part of not getting rigid with it is, is letting things evolve. So I'm super curious because you're talking a lot about the personal transformation, but as I look at your story, you know, along that time, there's been quite a transformation in your professional work and and all of that. And, you know, you mentioned earlier being kind of a partner to venture capital firm at that time. And I know you're now focused exclusively on coaching. And so I'd love to hear about how did that shift occur, you know, during this time? Yeah, it was around the time I, I, I got, it actually happened before I got sober. In 2013, I heard a podcast with Jerry Colonna, the, the super well-known CEO, founder, coach of a company called Reboot. And I just heard him on this podcast. I was like, who is this guy? Who is he? And I, afterwards, I literally cold emailed him and I was like, this is who I am. You know, I'm an investor. I'm not sure if you coach investors, even though I know I know you are you're a former investor, um, would love to meet. And he replied and said, Hey, look, like let's let's get together. And there was something about what he did that really appealed to me. And I just kind of like picked that up in the back of my head. And 
Then fast forward, my wife started a company. She's the founder and CEO of a company called The Sill. What happened, she would come home at the end of every day and tell me not how she was crushing her business and everything was going well, but she was sharing all the the sort of the interpersonal challenges, but also the emotional challenges of running a business. And what I found so fascinating was all the founders that I was investing in, whenever I would meet with them, they would say, oh, we're cr- like everything's great. We just need help with, you know, with, with customers and, and hiring. But like other than that, we're good. And I also happen to have way more friends that are founders than investors, even at that time. And when I would get together with them, those that I didn't invest in, and they would say, hey, they, they would just open up to me because I was, you know, I feel like for one reason or another, maybe, you know, people could trust me um, or talk to me and feel like they could open up, but they would tell me about all their challenges. And finally, I was like, hmm, there's a disconnect because when I'm actually having open conversations with these founders, what I like founders that I haven't invested in, they're sharing these these challenges like something's up like i actually think investors can provide a lot more value than they're currently providing in the form of coaching and leadership development so that was the initial thread that i was like hmm like it was more of like an instinct in, in my zone of genius which is an exercise i've gone through like one of my areas of zones of genius is to be able to very quickly synthesize lots of information and see opportunities. And so I was like, yeah, there's an opportunity here. And then I thought about Jerry. And so I started just, I became coach curious. And that led me on a path to believing that you could infuse leadership development, coaching, and investing in a very uh, unique and authentic way. And that was, that was basically the instinct. And then, you know, I ultimately decided to uh, not go all in on coaching, but just dip my toe in the water. And I, I write about it this week in, in this week's issue of, of Lightweights, my newsletter, where, you know, I viewed it as an experiment where I was like, first I got a book and I read the book and I was like, oh, this actually is pretty awesome. Then I went and I talked to a handful of coaches that were like two or three years you know, on their path. So not too far ahead, not Jerry. And so then I, and and then I was like, oh, this is what their days are like. This is what they did to train. Okay. I'm going to invest and enroll in a course. And so the point that I'm getting at, it wasn't like, I'm going to go set the world on fire and this is going to be my thing. You know, this was five, more than five years ago. This was almost six years ago. So it's been an evolution and a series of experiments that I've been running, but that's really how I got into it. And then sure enough, like, you know, now I'm, I'm doing what Jerry does. Yeah, you, you've written about change as a slow wave, which, which really resonated with me because I think people think of change that happens overnight. And I think people think that they need to dramatically shift their lives if they're going to, to evolve. Could you talk a bit about like how you think people can apply that concept or just like what you, what you mean by a more gradual approach to change? Yeah, well... You know, I, and I can speak for myself because I'm someone that, you know, likes to do a lot, right? I'm an Enneagram type seven, which is the enthusiast. Um, I love to explore. I love to learn. I love to come up with ideas. Um, It's just, 
it's my way of being. It's the way I'm wired. Um, and so I like to try a lot of things is another way of saying it. And so for me, what I've ultimately realized is that to change isn't to sort of snap our fingers overnight and say, we're this new person, right? The process of change requires um, letting go, perhaps, of, of who we are in some ways. It, it, it's taking on new ways of being, right? It's establishing new patterns and systems. And to me, I think the way to change is through consistency. It's through commitment and consistency over long periods of time, right? And that's what sobriety is, one day at a time. That's what they'll say in the rooms, one day at a time. It's like, um, you don't see it in, in the back, but you know, I have on the other side of my office, like a little gym with a pull-up bar, and parallel bars. And for me, it's like a little bit every day, stay committed and do the work. And that's how we change. It's not like, hey, I'm going to snap my fingers and I'm going to get jacked and I'm going to be able to see the results one week later. No, it takes it takes commitment. And so I think that applies to anything. Like, you know, meditation is another example where it's like if I gave up three months into my into meditation, and three months for a lot of people is a lot. That's a lot of meditation if you're meditating twice a day for 20 minutes. Um, but if I gave up that, then I like none, like the miracle probably wouldn't have happened. And so I think we need to get, we need to think on longer timelines and know that there's that, that we, we can't, we have to trust that something is going to unfold from this. And those that are willing to lean in, into that uncertainty and even the doubt that something's happening, those that are willing to do it usually will see the fruits on the other side of it. It's, you know, I think a lot about um, slow productivity from Cal Newport, which is a concept that I really love, which is like, at the end of the day, I've done as much as I can. If I'm focused on the right things and I have a good plan and I have the right structure, if I push it forward a little bit every day and trust that it's just all going to unfold. I love that. I, 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 I'm glad you brought up exercise because it's so near and dear to my heart. And I think for the yeah. reason that you're describing where the only way to, to grow, to evolve, to change is to take a very consistent, slow process. But I think what happens is it's so, it's so objective and it's so visible that that then bleeds over into other areas that are less visible. And so I think it's a great model. You use the, you use the word unfold a few times there. And I've seen you share a bit about self-improvement versus self-unfolding. And I know kind of the work of, of Steve March. Yeah. What does self-unfolding what what self mean? And, and how are you yeah. thinking about that in your own work these days? So I am, I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm taking Aletheia uh, level one right now. Uh, that's nice. the program. That's the coaching program designed by Steve March. And it's, I mean, I've, I've done a lot of amazing coaching programs over the last six years. And this, this one is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's, you know, it is an advanced coaching program, um, but it's, you know, it's been, it's been incredible. And their core, um, the core idea behind Aletheia is this idea of let it be, let it unfold. Uh, and, and that is, that is one of basically the core idea behind it. And that's not to say, hey, 
take your hands off the wheel and let the universe take over. It's not saying you're helpless and you're at the whim of the winds. What it's saying is there's a given situation right now. You're having an experience of that situation. And can you be with whatever is here? Can you acknowledge it? Can you be with it? Can you accept it? And can you trust that it's going to unfold uh, the way that it's going to unfold um, with being fundamentally attuned to what they would call truth, beauty, and goodness? And that, you know, in some ways, they, if you are attuned to truth, beauty, and goodness in yourself, in the world, in others, things are going to unfold beautifully and naturally and, and bring you to exactly where you that certainly doesn't sound like the approach that most people take naturally in terms no. of, I, I th- yeah, I think no, of everybody's gripping and. Yeah, it's not. And, you know, and the word I love is like it, the gripping is, is a great word. I also love the word efforting where, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny. I had one speed, you know, Charlie Sheen, when he was going on one of his public benders years ago, was like on the night, the today, the today show or something. It was like, or not today show, like the, the, um, the, the uh, Dave Letterman or something. It was like, I only have one speed and it's go. And me too. That's how I've always been, right? Like on my, on my whiteboard right here, it says, um, you know, basically I have, it says, um, instead of blow and go, breathe and go. Because I would blow Love and it. go. I would just make a decision and not even deal with the implications. And so for me, the mantra is breathe and go. And the difference between, and this is, this is part of the reason why I have, in uh, and, and large part, thanks to Steve March and Alethea, why I've completely shifted my view on, uh, on personal development is because um, a lot of personal development, even the wellness industry, which is probably going to be the, the topic of a future uh, issue that I have, basically is starting from the point that you're somehow broken. That you're not good enough, that something is missing, you're, you're, not, you're not fit enough, you're not weak enough, you're, or you're not strong enough, whatever that, whatever that is, not smart enough, I don't understand this. And, you know, with, with Integral and this idea of like personal unfolding is seeing that like, look, you have more resources available to you than you realize. And when we slow down and we get really present to our experience and we inquire into that experience, we can actually realize that we have all these characteristics that we had no idea was on, were online. And from that place, what do we create? And it's, it's wonderful, right? Like, let me give you, can, can I give you a perfect example yeah. of, of this at, 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 um, at work yesterday, I was being coached by one of my classmates, Jess, who's, you know, super, I mean, super talented coach. She's been at it for almost a decade. And um, I want to launch a podcast uh, at some point this year. And I have a very cynical part that beats me up that when I look at my calendar is like, Hey, why do you have all these things on your calendar? You say you want to start a podcast and he beats me like he berates me when I really tune in and I, I, underneath that, I feel shame, right? And and all these things. Like when you really slow down and tune into the voice, you can start to pick out all these parts. And what I ultimately learned by interviewing, by conversing with this part as 
as crazy as this sounds, was that this part was cynical because he didn't trust me. And he was playing a job to try to motivate me. But when I conversed with him, I said, I'm not being motivated. I'm actually, I'm, you're making me feel like there's another part that's coming on that, that feels shamed, like a hurt part. And so as this unfolded, this conversation with this part, he was like, I actually trust you. And I asked it what it wanted. And he said, I want you to just trust yourself. Like I want, like you have the right instincts. You, you know exactly what you need to do to go and make this happen. And this morning I was writing about that experience. I'm going to pull out my journal for the, for the readers or for the listeners. And literally I wrote, um, I know how to move forward, saying no, prioritizing, creating structure, getting help and block time. This was a 35 minute coaching session and I knew exactly what I need to go do now to go make this happen. That's unfolded, right? I'm yeah. not looking at it as I'm deficient, right? I'm looking at it as, hey, look, I'm, I'm fully resourced and if I trust the process and now what did I do as a result of that? I went and I blocked out all my Mondays for the rest of the year and Monday is going to be my podcast day. Love it. I think what you're getting at is so, so important. And you mentioned the wellness industry earlier, and I, I've experienced this firsthand. The amount that the wellness industry as a whole, where people are encouraging everyone to externalize authority, to say, you know, go find someone else to tell you how to be whole. If you uh, take this program and then everything will be okay. And I think that shift to saying to people, look within, find ways to cultivate the strengths from, from within is such a powerful one across so many different areas. And I think that, you know, having been on the other side of it, you know, ago, like if I had listened to you then, I would say, oh, that sounds really great. But like, I wouldn't have fully believed you. And I also would have been afraid of giving up a strategy that would have worked, that has worked well at other times. And so what I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is what do you think the costs are of not letting things unfold? Like, so for people who are continuing to try to grip, to try to control, what are some of the costs that they might not even be seeing? that they could gain from letting go of? Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think the word that you used is, is, a, is a powerful one, which is control, mm. right? And I think when we try to control outcomes, we get tunnel vision and we see less possibilities. So I think that's, that's one. Oftentimes, it's not efforting and working harder and doing more, but it's like almost like leaning back, right? Like, let me give you an example. I'm writing an essay right now. Um, if I'm efforting, if I'm going and trying to make this thing happen, there are going to be times where I'm just, I, I hit a brick wall. Like I, I did a few days ago and I said, you know what? I'm going to just step away. I'm going to go take a walk and I'm just going to trust that it, I'm just going to let it be. And guess what? That night I'm laying in bed at 1130. I can't sleep. And it just popped into my head. That's unfolding. That's the difference between effort. the efforting is in my computer. I'm forcing it. I'm making it happen. I'm going as hard as I possibly can. Um, and, but I step away. And in the moment that I least expect it, it comes to me. And I think there needs to be this trust. But if we're trying to control the way we think, you know, our interactions, how people respond to us, what people think of us, 
um, how how the world reacts to us. Like that's that's crazy. It's mishugana, as they say in Yiddish. You know, it's it's um, you know the the world is so complex. There's so many interdependent parts. They're trying to control it. It's crazy. So the only thing you control can really control is how you move through the world and how you experience it. Yeah. It sounds exhausting too when you when you really paint the picture of what a lot of people are trying to do in terms of that level of control, that level of exerting, and it's um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. I've I've had a bunch of conversations the last few months that have brought up this idea of non doing, um, and it's bubbled up in a bunch of different people's work across writing, across gardening. Um, I think about a lot of it in terms of physical activity. Does that does that term does that concept resonate with you? Have you explored that much in your own life? I, 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 you know, I, I love the idea of non-doing. Um, you know, I, I view my, my writing in, in some ways as like a form of non-doing. At first it was very difficult. And by writing, I mean like journaling, stream of consciousness, yeah. whatever comes up, like fully expressing my experience. There'd be times where I get antsy because I'm like, oh, this isn't like, this isn't going to see the light of day. No one's going to read this. Like, what am I really doing? Like, this is a waste of time. And then what I've begun to realize is actually that's the most valuable time I spend writing. And um, you can't, I mean, I guess you can see it there. Um, you have this, uh, the, the, the Lego um, Saturn, Saturn five rocket ship there. Oh, sure. Um, over here I have, you know, the Titanic Legos, almost 11,000 pieces. And for me, like I view like Legos as something that's like, it's, I'm not trying to achieve any, like, yes, I'm building it and I'm getting to the end of it, but I view that as very meditative. It's a fun experience. I'm not like trying to win any accolades for my, my Lego building. And I just view it as like this, this uh, ability to use my hands, use my mind. And, you know, it, it's a great process. I also love walking. Right. And walking is a wonderful not doing and literally not having any idea where I'm going to walk in the city and just ending up somewhere random and turning around and coming home and, and not listening to podcasts and just like taking in the city. It's 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 wonderful. And so I'm trying to incorporate more of this into my own life. Um, and it's great. It's it's really it, it makes you think that not every minute has to be optimized and Sam, coming back to the point that we talked about earlier on unfolding and letting things be, I have my best ideas oftentimes when I'm, I'm in these states. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm most creative when I'm in these states. And so that's the, that's the pitch that I make to entrepreneurs. Like, I guarantee you when you're in your garden, I mean, I'd even ask you, like, you love gardening. Like, yeah. what's your experience? Yeah, it's exactly that. It's just creating space to reconnect, to experience like a, a broader perspective. And I'll, my mind will quiet. I'll, I'll kind of shift to, I, I like to think of a metaphor in terms of like most of my life I lived in this mindset of competition, right? Like I'm going to exert mm -hmm. myself and I'm going to compete with others. And I'm going to win at whatever arena I'm playing at. And when you immerse yourself in gardening, it shifts to a mindset of cultivation. Like I'm going to create mm -hmm. conditions that this plant can succeed. I can't compete with nature. Um, and so there's yeah. this like, there's this like Talk meta about control, right. Or lack yeah. of control, like, you know, being letting unfold. Yeah. It's a great... it's a, yeah. Gardening is unfolding, right? You plant the seed yeah. and then you let it unfold. 
Um, and then in the moment, just like walking, you know, randomly these ideas will come and they'll be super relevant and they, they just unfolded. And so, yeah, this, th- these themes are, are just, you know, something that I have, I have come to believe so strongly and they're so different than how, you know, I operated when I was younger. And I, I get a sense of that with you too, that this has been a big shift. You mentioned the Enneagram seven and, you know, I'm an Enneagram three, you know, the, the achiever. Yeah, exactly. Right? You, could, you, could probably already, you probably already pegged me, right? 80, 80% um, of my coaching clients are any yeah. type threes. Well, if you want to nerd out on this just for a second, my funny story with that is I convinced myself most of my life I was an eight, the challenger, because I was embarrassed about how much I cared about achieving and what oh, other that, people thought. So amazing. I was like smart. Yeah, right? Like I was smart. There's, a perso- like, there's like a persona on top yeah. of it where it's like, I'm not, I'm not a three. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I don't care what everybody else thinks, but really yeah. deep down I did. And over the last decade, it's been admitting that to myself, understanding that. And, you know, a lot of good stuff has come from not fighting that, not resisting that. And so maybe this is a good lead in because I'm super interested in it. You mentioned parts earlier, um, and I know that comes from the the world of IFS. Um, and that's something that I haven't explored much myself, but I have a lot of curiosity for. So I'd be curious, like, how is IFS? I mean, if you could just explain it to people and then just talk a little bit about like the impact it's had on your life. Yeah. So IFS is, um, for those that don't know, I'd imagine a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with it, which is internal family systems. The way I like to do it, which was developed by Dr. Uh, Richard, D- I guess he goes by Dick Schwartz, based out of Boston, researcher at Harvard. And he was a family therapist and through his work with uh, uh, in, in the 70s and 80s uh, with families and then with bulimic patients, he noticed that they were saying, talking a lot about what they would say is parts. You know, they would say like a part of me, you know, feels this way. And, you know, he was like, hmm, that, that's interesting. And so, you know, through uh, his experience with um, just gestalt therapy, um, he was like, well, what if we talk to the part? And so now fast forward, however long it's been, you know, almost 40, 40 plus years, um, you know, he, he has developed a form of therapy that basically looks at, uh, or or basically the way to think about it is it, it, it looks at the mind as multiple and not a single mind. So if you look at historical theory of psychology is we are, we we have a single mind, you know, it's just one mind. And, you know, a lot of people, that's how they experience the world. And Dick Schwartz came and said, Hey, look, actually like we're, we're multiple, we contain multitudes. And, um, that's a powerful idea because when we, um, recognize that we have these parts that play all these different roles in our lives, um, and all of them have a good and positive intention, even if, they're like, even if our experience is not positive. And so when we begin to realize this and we can see how these parts, the roles that these parts play and what they want, we can start to appreciate them. We can start to really develop a tremendous amount of agency in our lives. And what Dick Schwartz would say is, you know, we get access to what he calls the self with a capital S, you know, other other traditions might call it Atman, might call it presence. Um, but the point is, is that when we have access to the self, we have confidence, clarity, calm, and all these other amazing qualities. He calls them the eight C's. Um, and so 
uh, I first learned of IFS five plus years ago when I was in my initial coaching program. And it's something that I am not certified, but in a bunch of the different trainings that I've done specifically with conscious leadership group, now Aletheia, um, uh, and on my own learning, I have gone pretty deep into it and it's, it's changed my life. Like I've, I, I like it has absolutely changed my life more than I think any form of therapy. Yeah. How, how, how has it changed your life? Like, how would you describe that to someone? Yeah. Um, well, I think for me, it's really understanding these different parts, right. And, and, and what they want and where they came from and, you know, how they behave and how they're misunderstood and why they're patterned the way that they are and what they're afraid of. And, you know, again, maybe I could, you know, let me give you an example. When I was in CLG coaching, uh, sorry, um, uh, uh, conscious leadership group, I went through a 12 month intensive with them. It was amazing. It was basically like a 12 month coaching training. Hmm. And one of the facilitators took us through this, um, this, uh, this almost like this deep visualization exercise that uh, had a stand. I've, I've written about this uh, on my, I've written an essay about parts, but this is how I open. But basically, imagine us that we were standing on a stage looking out to a sea of uh, versions of ourselves, you know, all different ages, different parts of ourselves. And I walked up to this old little part of me, and I was an obese kid. I was really, really, I was like, you know, 120 pounds in third grade, like made fun of you know, like definitely, definitely have like a little fat Steve part of me that's wounded, that doesn't have a lot of self-esteem, that doesn't have a lot of confidence, is very sad, small. And I didn't even know this part existed. But then sure enough, I'm like, I'm, I'm standing on the stage at the Columbia River Gorge. That was what I was imagining, looking out into this, the sea of Steve's. And I walked up to the, you know, to this literal, literally this like 10 year old version of myself. And I just put my arm around it. Normally I would shun it. I would hate it. But for some, something instinctively, I just walked up to it in my mind's eye, put my arm around with it. And then we just hung out. Like it was like, I was his camp counselor. And literally after this visualization, I had this like melting experience where I was like, oh fuck, that's all this part wanted was just to be accepted just to have someone with it. So, like felt like they were loved and belonged. And I went to the facilitator afterwards. I was like, I just had this like crazy experience. I can't even describe what happened to you right now, but like, I feel like I love myself way more at the end of it. And this is just one example, Sam, from this. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's, um, it's really changed my life in a lot of ways. I think even speaking to the part of me that's cynical, that beats me up, you know, that doesn't trust me now. Now he's like, no, I actually do trust you. And that's why I'm writing. Like, you know exactly what you need to do. And then I was like, oh, okay. Like I do trust myself. Like I do have good instincts. So, so when we start to really understand these parts that are protector parts, right? They're proactive protectors, they're reactive protectors, right? There's hurt parts, so there, there's all there are con, there's a whole constellation. Most of us have thirty to fifty of them, um, and so the more that we get to know them, 
the more the, the less they run our lives and the less we identify with them and we can name them for what they are and create a little bit of space, have a relationship with them and decide how we want, how we want to be with them going forward. That I think is the Sorry part. to go on a tangent. No, I talk no, about I, this I'm, all day. Yeah, and and it's it. so, yeah, it's so alive for me because, you know, more and more I'm recognizing in my own life how kind of resistance to you know, parts or, you know, inner, inner forces, whatever you want to call it, how that resistance comes up and how much that doesn't serve me and how things then bubble up in other places. And so I've gotten really, really interested in kind of different approaches to try to let and be okay with that. And I think that, um, I don't know how IFS talks about it, but this, this notion of wholeness or, or creating conditions to, rather than try to like push down parts and say, oh, that part of me is not okay, but this other part is good. I think that, you know, activities that try to point us towards wholeness are, are really interesting to me. So I don't yeah, know. If I, 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 yeah. And this, and, and I think IFS, that is, that is absolutely one of the, the key ideas or benefits of it is yeah. helping you see your wholeness mm. and that, you know, as, as, as Dick Schwartz would say, there are no bad parts. Right. right. They're, they're, they're all, they, they, most of them formed when we were younger and they, they all play a role. And the key is um, the more that we embrace these and we embrace our wholeness, the more compassion we have for ourselves, the better we can show up for the world for, for ourselves and others. So one thing that I'll quickly touch on that I love from my, I, I work with a, um, with a, a meditation, a, a Zen Buddhist meditation teacher, but he's really like a, a Buddhist teacher that I, that I work with. Uh, his name is Roishin and um, the guy's, the guy's a legend. He's amazing. He was the, the Abbey at the uh, Zen Mountain Monastery up in the Catskills for a long time now lives in New York city and has, you know, a massive following. And, you know, he and I were talking about wholeness and I was like, wow, like, you know, the more I work, the more I work I do and the more I learn about myself, it's like peeling back the onion. And he's like, I'd actually encourage you to think about it different. He's like, view it as you have a ball of clay, you're adding to it. Right. So mm. wholeness isn't around like breaking down and peeling back. It's actually discovering what's there and almost like adding to it. An analogy that I love using, which is like video games, right? Like think about like, and this, I don't know if this analogy makes a whole lot of sense, but I'll just go with it, which is, you know, imagine like Atari back in the day, you know, probably before you were born. And then there was the Nintendo, you know, the Nintendo 8-bit and then the yeah. Super Nintendo and the Genesis and then the PlayStation and everyone, you get more resolution, right? You're able to see, you know, what's, what's there. And I think that's the beauty of doing shadow work, which, you know, IFS is, is one of yeah. those techniques to start to see what's there so you can add it and you actually become bigger over time and you can embrace the good, the bad, the ugly for what it is. What does the shadow, like, what does the shadow mean to you? Well, the shadow is the parts of ourselves that we don't see that are, that are unconscious is, is really what, what it is. And, you know, that comes from young. Um, but that's the core idea is we have all these parts of ourselves that we don't even know are online. 
that's, I mean, it's why I love just even as like a, as, as practices, meditation and journaling, because we're able to start to really see what's there. I mean, it's why I believe that metacognition is really uh, one of the key skills that, you know, everybody should develop, especially leaders, which is the ability to, to see your thoughts and be with mm-hmm. your thoughts and, and sort of, but at, at a distance. Um, and, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think going back to the shadow, the thing is, is metacognition and practices like meditation and writing certainly help. But there are going to be parts of your shadow that you can't see that other people are going to have to identify uh, for you. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of different techniques to identify shadow. There's actually a teacher who I've studied under. His name is Kim Barta. He is amazing. Um, he actually does a year long shadow, shadow course. Um, and, you know, he talks about different kinds of shadows where you have, you know, in, introjections, which are basically uh, shadow, they're like beliefs that other people have. They're almost like, think of them as like memes. They're like ideas and beliefs that other people kind of inject into you mm. that you take on as your own perspectives, ideas, beliefs. Um, so that's a form of shadow. And so you basically, you don't realize that these, that these ideas from other people are really op- like running the way operating and how you're seeing the world. Then you have projections, right? Which is us projecting, you know, the way we see the world, the way we feel onto other people. And then we have what Barta would call split ego states, which in a lot of ways is like, are like parts, parts that, you know, are in conflict. To, to riff on that idea of other people's projections, I, I think for me personally, that really relates to this idea of ambition. And I know you've written about it really recently, and I've been thinking a ton about this lately. But for myself, I saw how much other people's projections, other people, like society's projections of what I should be ambitious about, how much that shaped where I felt like I had to go. So I'd love to hear, how has your relationship to the, the idea of ambition evolved over the last decade or more? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I just wrote a, a quite, quite a lengthy piece on that I titled Rethinking Ambition. And, you know, what I, what I, what I talk about in the piece is that we, you know, well, let me first share my own experience as an investor I was working 70, 80 hours a week, back-to-back meetings, email late at night, events. I mean, it, my life was, was crazy. Traveling on planes, going to conferences. It was nonstop. I mean, there's no, no wonder why I was using uh, drugs and alcohol mm. to help me cope through that, that period of my life. But it was nonstop, and I wanted it all. I wanted money. I wanted to be influential. I wanted to be success. Like you, Sam, I was raised as an athlete, and I was taught by one of my teachers that you got to compete, and coaches got to compete. You got to compete, and when that's ingrained in you, that's all. Like I have to be ambitious. I have to like. Oh, if I'm not going to go try to be the best investor, then why am I even doing it? What's the point? And when I stepped away from investing, I, I, I walked away from a, a fund I was raising. I basically had the, the bulk of the fund raised. This was almost 12 months ago. And I was going to actually 
um, integrate coaching and investing, as I talked about earlier. And I just looked in the mirror and I said, I actually don't want to be an investor. I want to coach full time. This is what I feel called to do. Took me a little while to get there. And on the other side of that decision, when I finally stepped away from invest, like all of investing, and I was like, okay, I'm done with it. Um, what I ultimately, what came over me was actually a lack of ambition. I'm working, I work, you know, again, I work with this coach who's also a psychotherapist. He said, what, what if you could play with this idea of, of, of Steve actually doing nothing but coaching and being a dad? And at the time, the idea was so foreign to, or writing and coaching and, and being a dad. And I was like, that, that idea is impossible to me, but I'll try it on. And it stuck. And most of my life, the vast majority of my life in the last 12 months was coaching, writing, and being a dad. Coaching, writing, and being a dad. And, you know, what I ultimately realized was I began to, like, as I embraced that, began to almost like shun ambition. And I used, I looked at everything on Twitter and, you know, and all these like tweet threads and, you know, and how to hacks to, to improve your life and, you know, people that become epidemiologists in 24 hours when there's a new virus and, you know, national security experts on, on nuclear war, you know, in a matter of days. I'm just like, I, I just, it was like, to me, it was just, I, I started to like sort of constrict and, and move away and just hate what I saw. And I think underneath it, there was envy, jealousy, I was burnt out, anxiety, and so what happened is, is I went from one end of the spectrum being one of the most ambitious people um, I know to on the other end of the spectrum, just completely pulling away and removing myself from Twitter, basically being in my one room office all by myself for the better part of a year. And I said, okay, if and, uh, while this was going on, all these discussions about quiet quitting and mm. um, and and you know the great uh, resignation and people re- you know like ambition is bad and all you know and ultimately I you know Sam I was just like there needs to be a middle ground like I hate the way that traditional ambition has made me feel success at all costs. And I hate the wheel, the way that anti-ambition feels. And so what if we took a step back and actually redefined in our relationship to ambition? And that led me on a course to, you know, to sort of ultimately create this concept that I call holistic ambition, which is how do we infuse ambition into, you know, many areas of our life beyond just work? And that doesn't mean not work but beyond work. And that can show up in so many different ways, depending on what you care about and what you value. Yeah. I really wish you had uh, told me that concept 10 years ago. Cause it's been, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's been, it's been a, it's been a decade of pain. Um, and I, I really do feel like that's the lesson that I've had to learn for myself. Um, and you know, very similar journey in terms of, I think where, where it originated, but it, it's, it's fascinating to me to hear you describe that because I think just you know, reflecting on it now, like it to me is more impressive that you looked at that path of being a VC and you said, that's not who I am inside. Like it, to me, it's more ambitious as I define ambition today for you to know yourself 
and say, this is the life I want. And I'm willing to make sacrifices that other people might not understand. I'm willing to, you know, confuse all of my peers who define ambition one way because I'm pursuing something that really feels great to me. Like that to me is still ambition, right? Like that, like that is just as inspiring. And I think that you're probably, you know, working just as hard, even if it's not efforting to live a life that's meaningful for you today. So yeah. it's super inspiring to me that you, you made that choice and are owning that. Yeah. It, you know, and I, I've written about this uh, multiple times, um, one of my, a newsletter and also this recent essay, but I, I actually, the, the thing that sparked this was my friend, Jonathan Basker, who's, you know, amazing human being. And I remember it was before I decided to pull away from my fund and, you know, I had seven plus million dollars raised. Um, I was literally ready to do a first capital call. And he and I were sitting in Madison Square Park on a perfect fall night. And he said, the way you talk about investing is it's almost like you're in a bad relationship. Mm. And every time I talk to you, you're just, it's, there's something. And I was like, yeah. It, I can relate to that. I was like, that's a funny analogy, but let's go with it. And then he said something that I'll never forget, which is this. He said, you know, Steve, for a long time, I thought I wasn't, wasn't ambitious until I realized my ambition is to live a good life. Yeah. And that in that moment, I was like, fuck, that's, that's what I needed to hear in that moment. It was exact. Talk about unfolding. Yeah. That was exactly what I needed to hear. And in that moment, I go, oh, I, I knew it. I knew it because for me, it was like, oh, okay. Like my ambition isn't to be the best investor in the world. And a few days later, I wrote a blog post that said, just because you can do something, like you're capable of something, doesn't mean it's right for you. Just because I could go and raise $10 million and deploy capital, I could have probably raised a lot more than that if I had really wanted and threw myself into it. But just because you can do something doesn't mean it's for you. And that first conversation and sitting on both ends of the spectrum just really let, let me redefine what ambition means to me. I think that's so powerful and key and giving people permission to find other areas to channel it. I think for me, it's now been, we talked about the garden earlier, but I think growing a ton of my own food and creating a food forest that I kind of tend to and cultivate over many years. Like that is a place I can channel ambition, even if nobody else in the world cares about it or thinks that it's impressive or anything. It, it matters to me and I know what, what goes into it. And I think there's so many areas in our lives that this happens. Like I'm, I'm in process of moving my family with my wife up back to where we, we grew up near our families. And like, that's ambitious. We are literally going to have to re recreate our lives in a new place, but it's because it matters to us. And so, yeah, I just, I, I think that what you're sharing is so important one thing that I, it's somewhat related to this, I, I think, and I'm, I'm really curious about is power dynamics because I, I've, I've heard you talk a little bit about how like the power dynamics of investing and coaching are very different. And so, you know, I think there's an element of status and, and all of this, but from your vantage point, having coached a lot of high achievers and people in, in influential positions, how do you think about power dynamics and how has that shown up in your own life? Yeah. Well, first thing I would say is for those that are in power, it's hard to see power dynamics. Mm. It's almost like the two, you know, a lot of people use this and that, you know, um, David Foster Wallace, you know, what's water? 
Yeah. Like those who have power realize they have power, but they don't, they don't really, I think, understand the extent of power. Mm. So that's the first thing. And for me, um, in terms of the, di- the dynamic between investors and founders, I think a perfect example that I touched on earlier in the conversation is when I was meeting with founders in our portfolio when I was at Lair Ventures and they were all like, we're crushing it. So when I was meeting with my, like when I was hanging out with my friends and my wife and they were like, yeah, we're struggling with all these things. Yeah. That insight that I had at its core was there's a power dynamic, right? There's something that the founders that we're investing in aren't telling us because they, they must not feel comfortable. Because we have to write another invent, like what if things aren't going well and they need to write a check? You know, what if I appear weak or incompetent and I lose confidence, right? There's, I mean, those are just a few examples. We could spend a lot of time unpacking. And so that was, that was really the first realization. Second realization is I left RRE Ventures, um, I was on the board of a company called Breather, funded by an entrepreneur uh, named Julian Smith, who, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an investor in his new company that actually is building software for coaches called Practice, great mm. product. Um, and I remember sitting with him at in a Breather in, in Union Square on University Place in New York, and I was no longer on his board. And I'll never forget, he said to me, like, I ha- I've had so much anxiety building this company and I'm not sure I'm the right guy to, to uh, build, like take it forward. And he said, and I've wanted to tell you this, but I couldn't tell you because you were on my board. I was afraid to tell you. And first of all, I, you know, I, I admire Julian for being able to actually articulate that in the way he did. It made me really appreciate our relationship. Um, and, you know, he continued to say, there are walls that go up that entrepreneurs build depending on the, and if you're an angel, you might get the full thing because it's a small check. They're, they're betting on you. But if you're an institutional investor and you have to write pro rata, like I'm going to put up some walls because I might need that money. And so he sort of described this power dynamic as, you know, as, you know, some entrepreneurs have to create walls to create or put up armor as another way to appear a certain way. And so being a coach, it's obviously, it's part of the reason why I think I love coaching. So not, I think I know I love coaching is because of the authentic relationship, the conversations, the ability to meet someone exactly where they are and honor that, whatever they're bringing to, 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 to the table, uh, to, the, to the container is a better way to say it. And yeah, I, listen, I, I, I really, um, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world to be able to do this. But I think a big reason why I prefer coaching over investing is because those power dynamics, it's, I view, we're walking shoulder by shoulder. You know, we're, we're on this path together, uh, that my clients and I, and it, it's really, it's, it's, it's a partnership, but in a different, like, so is an investor and, a, and, a, and an entrepreneur. That's a, 
contractual partnership. This is more of an emotional partnership and co-creation. One, one thing there that I think is pretty powerful is I feel like the way you're describing coaching is a shift from the what to the how. And this is something I've thought a lot about in my own life, which is, you know, investing or coaching is the what of what you're doing. But what it sounds like you love about it is how it enables you to show up day to day. And I think that we focus too much on what I'm doing and how society views what I'm doing and the status of that. And I think that the how we get to behave every day, the things we get to do, the nature of our relationships is so underrated. And I think if people, my, my sense is if people focus more on that, they'd be happier day to day. I'm curious yeah. what your take on that is. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I talk about in this piece and, you know, this isn't a new concept, but, you know, the difference between being and doing. Mm, I love that. And yeah, and, and the way it shows up is like, let's say you're meeting, you're meeting with a, a coach or, and they're, and they're like, okay, what do you want to do? What are your goals? And the goals are like, I want to lose 20 pounds and I want to, you know, lose X percent of body fat and get ripped and be able to bench press, you know, 250 pounds and, you know, and then it's like, okay, well, here's, I'm going to write you a, um, basically a, a, a program to, for you to follow. That's the doing. Mm-hmm. And what happens is um, when we just focus on the, on the what, and we just focus on the action, oftentimes it misses that actually First of all, like, okay, if we actually do this, if we are able to bench 225 pounds, if we lose 20 pounds, like, what's that going to do for us? Like, how is the way that we show up in the world going to actually change? How is the way we move through the world going to change? And ultimately, when we unpack that, how do you need to be in order to go and actually achieve this plan? You know, who do you have to be more of? What changes do you have to make? Um, and so to me, I think that's like a perfect example of like being and doing. And um, so for me, like, it's funny, like I have a client right now, the great example, who investor wants to be one of the best investors in the world. That's his goal. And I said, okay, so let's uh, talk about this. What's different for you? And he's, by the way, this investor is already extremely successful. You know, works for an incredible fund. Doesn't it doesn't have to work? You know, down the road for sure, right? He's built a lot of wealth for himself. Um, so I said, okay, let's imagine you're on the Midas list. You're one of the best investors in the world. Now what? And he said, I have um, freedom. It's like, okay. Well, how does that like? Okay, so talk to me about how you move through the world when you have freedom. What we ultimately got at is he actually has a lot of freedom right now. And so we were able to like really start to unpack like, okay, well, what, you know, what's behind this desire to be one of the best investors? And deep down inside, it wasn't about freedom. Yeah, these are these are such powerful concepts and I it to me leads right into an idea that I've heard you talk about that I'm so I'm so curious to hear the like the full expression of. Um I know we're we're running up on time, but yeah. You you talked about how your view is that some of society's largest challenges are a being problem, whether we're talking about healthcare, you know, poverty, other other things. You describe them there as a being problem and I'd love to I'd love to hear 
and and that you think that there are potential ways in the decades ahead ahead that we can really address that. So I'd love to hear what you mean by that and and what your thoughts are there. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's funny because I posted that and I got some people being like, "What what are you smoking?" And yeah. I was like, "Well, and actually, I'm like, I yeah, Steve, stopped. tell me more." Yeah, I was like, I, I stopped smoking a long time ago, and, and you know, there's that quote from, um, you know. Uh, Einstein said something to the effect of, you know, to solve the biggest problems, you have to use a different consciousness than the ones that created them. Something to that effect. And I think that goes with the same thing. And I think, you know, what, what we're, what we're, we're in a world specifically in the West that's prioritized the individual, you know, me over we. And so I think that's a specific way of being that we're seeing. And I think that these problems that we're faced with, they're we problems. And I think that that's a big part of it. And I also think that, um, how are we doing on some of these biggest problems? Yes, we're innovating. Like, think about like Gabor Mate's new book, The Myth of Normal, talks exactly about this. So we have more innovation in healthcare than ever before. Look at the stats. Mental health, like tens of millions of people are battling depression, anxiety. You know, like, you know, life expectancy is actually going down for the first time. Like, we have a being problem. We don't know how to be in this world that's increasingly complex. It's messy, right? Uh, and, and I think it's really, it's about evolving how we actually move through the world. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, like think about climate as like a good example, right? There's a lot of people that don't even think there's a problem. And like, we're in a phase where we're in late stage capitalism. Like listen to Jamie Dimon. And by the way, I'm a capitalist, right? Like I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I, 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 I want to see our country thrive and succeed. And capitalism is a big underpinning of, of our system, our country. Um, but Jamie Dimon's like, you know, talking about the economy and going into recession and you know, energy prices, and he's just sounding the alarm bells. Like we cannot afford to, to, to go into recession, right? And, and I think that's a symptom of it's like growth at all costs. And because it's growth at all costs, you know, what's, what's the cost? Well, the environment is a cost. Um, healthcare is a cost. Because these are problems that are, these are massive systems, and so it's, it, we need to change the way that we're trying to solve these problems because the way we're doing it now aren't working. And that doesn't mean that like entrepreneurship isn't a solution. It doesn't mean that innovation isn't a solution, but like we really need to see that the world is a lot more inter interdependent and that, that it's complex and that there's a lot of implications on these decisions. There's a lot of stakeholders 
And the only way that we're going to be able to get through it and solve these is if we approach these problems from entirely new ways. For sure. And, and what I take from that within the lens that I'm thinking about here is, you know, you're talking about how we need to renew society and, and the ways in which we can go in new directions there. But I think what, you, what you're getting at with this, we have a being problem. And what I think is so clear in your work and your own inner transformation is the way you start to t- transform that is by being comfortable transforming ourselves. Like if we're not able to get comfortable with renewing and evolving ourselves of being in a new way, how do we think we can change our organizations in new ways? And how can our organizations then transform the world? Um, so that's what I think is so powerful to me about what you're saying. Yeah, it's, um, you know, goes back to, to, to my, one of my favorite performers of all time, Michael Jackson, you know, Mar- Man in the Mirror. You know, it literally, it starts, it starts with you and me and, you know, everybody, everybody has a responsibility. So, but that's the, that's the cool thing about this, right? Sam is like, as I said, we have a me problem. Yep. Right. But it starts with, it starts with us. Yeah. Right. Like we can't, we can't change the world unless we change ourselves. To, you know, to to reiterate what you just said. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I one one final question for you, just within this theme, is: Are there any areas in your life? I mean, I I, I know you just became a father. I, I wish we could have chat about that at length. Se- second time, yeah. second time. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, you Two just had kids, it your yeah. second. Yep. So I wish I could have picked your brain on that. But I'm curious, just with everything going on, are there any areas in your life that you feel like you're in an active season of renewal or where things are evolving? Hmm. I, I, I would say that, I mean, yes, on the family side, I have a newborn. She's eight weeks old. Amazing. I mean, there's nothing. If you have kids one day, you'll, you'll experience this. We, we have but, a seven, seven month old now. Oh, so, oh, right. Okay, great. But that just, you know, like this last night at 11 o'clock, I'm holding her and she's just looking at me with her big brown eyes staring up with like full presence and there's nothing, there's nothing like it. So I think for me, it's big part of it is how do I um, settle into a routine with my new family life um, that, you know, puts them front and center uh, or, you know, I, I, I like being balanced. So not putting one in front of the other, but, you know, as I've been saying to my wife, my mantra right now is family first, whatever it takes that's my mantra. And she, she obviously laughs at me that that's what it is. So I would say like, for me, because balance is so important, I'd say family, very, very focused right now on coaching, going through Aletheia and, and really leaning into that training, um, really focused on writing and working with my editor, Rachel, she, you know, doing a lot of putting a lot of hours. And, you know, I also think, the, the podcast will eventually, you know, take flight, or I hope it does, right? That's the plan right now. And um, so I, I think I'm going to try to take the long view on all these, just show up every day and inch it a little bit forward to come back to that, that longer term mindset view that we, we, we talked about. Beautiful. I, I, I'll be linking to um, a few of the articles you've highlighted because, there's just there's a lot of really great stuff, and I think you've you've hinted at hinted at it, but the the depth at which you you go into in your writing it's it's really powerful. So anywhere else that you'd like people to to point people towards for for your work? 
Well, if you liked what you heard, you can check out my website at schlaf.co, S-C-H-L-A-F, as in Frank, .co, or you can check me out on Twitter, I'm at Schlaf. And um, yeah, if you like what you heard, feel free to subscribe to my newsletter, Lightweights. You can do that on my website. And yeah, feel free to drop me a line if you today's conversation sparked anything. I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. This was so much fun. Look forward to another conversation another time. Thanks, Sam. Hope you got as much in this conversation with Steve as I have. There's so much I want to explore further in my own life, especially around parts work, the shadow, and wholeness. If these themes resonated, I recommend subscribing to Steve's newsletter to Light Waves and checking out his free annual review template. Thanks for listening.